Hallowed be thy name. What a strange phrase in the English, huh? In our everyday language, we might say, God, our Heavenly Father, may it be your name and no one else's be holy. Think about it, though. This isn't man deciding God's name is holy. Matthew isn't making this up. This is Jesus, God in the flesh, telling mankind that his name is to be held in high esteem above all other names ever. God's name was given to us when we became Christians and were baptized. And so we are his children and we have his word. We have baptism and we have the Lord's Supper through which he incorporates himself into us. People wonder all the time, am I close to God? Is he close to me? Because they don't feel it or they've got things going on. They wonder why. Where is God? But when you have his word and are baptized and receive communion regularly, you and God are so close to one another, you, as close as one can be. And so it's gravely important And we should be most concerned that God's name receive due honor as the greatest treasure and most sacred thing we have. More sacred than if we had the Ark of the Covenant in here. And we were its custodians. Or the cross that Christ died on. You know, sacred as those things are, His name, whether it's Father, Yahweh, Jesus, the Christ, Holy Spirit is the most sacred thing. The most. But how does it become holy? Well, the plainest answer I can give is when both our teaching and our life are godly and Christian. Seems pretty basic, doesn't it? We don't teach the popular wisdom of the world in church. We don't teach New Age philosophy or ancient spiritualism. If we did that, we would shame his name, not praise it. It's troubling enough that we profane his name all the time with our words and acts. As humans, that's all we can do. Anyways, speak and act, right? Unless you're catatonic, but then some philosopher could argue your lack of action is still an act. Nevertheless, We creatures of God profane His name when we use it to cover our lies, our shame, cursing others in His name, cursing things in His name. Don't be around me when I'm cutting back blackberry bushes in my backyard. I mean, the whole species of blackberry world over would be destroyed now if God granted my prayers of damnation. Seems trifle, but it's a misuse of His name, which... I don't like it when I do it, and I repent. But then there are the acts, the deeds, and need I go into detail? I mean, Luther only mentions five. Being unfaithful in your marriage, drunkenness, overindulgence, jealousy, and slandering. Just as it's a shame and a disgrace to an earthly father to have a bad, unruly kid who antagonizes him and in word and deed with the result that the father ends up scorned and ridiculed 
in the community. It's the, it's the same for our Heavenly Father. When we behave like children of the devil rather than his kids. But all is not hopeless. Remember, this is the prayer that God himself gave us. So you're praying the Lord's Prayer in church or at home or in your car, <coughs> wherever, excuse me. <clears throat> and you've just finished the part where you've echoed back to God that His name is holy. And that you might keep it that way in word and deed. And in the same way, He tells us to ask that His kingdom may arrive and be a holy kingdom among us. That it would prevail over the dark kingdom of this world managed by the prince of darkness. And the good news is, God's kingdom has prevailed. It has. It's been prevailing since the beginning of time. God's kingdom has been coming in ripples, waves really, over time. His kingdom was here when he made the universe and the, this planet within it. More of it was brought in when he made his people Israel, when he said he would be their God and they would be his people. More of it arrived when Jesus was born, when he died, when he was resurrected, and when the Holy Spirit was given on Pentecost. More of his kingdom comes when we hear his word and are given faith to, re to believe it. And there's more to come. <clears throat> This afternoon, I'm going to show you pictures of pictures I took in Jerusalem. You've seen a thousand pictures of Jerusalem, right? You know, maybe you've been there too. But remember, a new Jerusalem is coming. It will come down from heaven. It will come from God. It's not the old city. It's a new one. The new Jerusalem is where God and his people, us, will dwell together for eternity. All-encompassing. <clears throat> Any of you remember how wide and how deep and how high the city is? Any remember? Bag of M&Ms for whoever gets the first answer. 1,380 miles long, 1,380 miles wide, and 1,380 miles high. A city, a giant golden cube, but to mean all-encompassing and beyond our imagination. More kingdom of God is coming. You can check that out in Revelation. <clears throat> All right, so far, you've prayed to your father whose name is more important and revered among any other name in the whole universe. You've asked for his kingdom to come, even though measure upon measure of it already has and will regardless of whether you ask for it or not. Now you consider the poor breadbasket, the needs of our body and our life on earth. It's a brief and simple request. And you're not asking for crumbs here either. When we ask for daily bread, we ask for everything that's necessary in order to have, a, to have and enjoy life. And to the contrary, we're praying against everything that interferes with our daily needs and also enjoying it. When we pray, we're asking for more than just the bag of flour. We're asking also for the fields that grow the wheat. After all, if God didn't cause the grain to grow and didn't bless it and preserve it in the field, 
we could never have a loaf of bread to put on the table. Along with that, the farmer who grows and harvests the grain, the mill worker who grinds it to flour, the baker, the grocer who sells it in the market. Our daily bread includes everything that belongs to our entire life in this world. Clothing, shelter, government, protection, schools, hospitals, manufacturing, and all people and vocations that make life chug along and be bearable and enjoyable in this fallen world. In his day, Luther said, it would be fitting if the coat of arms of every upright prince were emblazoned with a loaf of bread instead of a lion, or if a loaf of bread were stamped on coins in order to remind both princes and subjects that it's through the prince's office that we enjoy protection and peace and that without, without them, we could neither eat nor preserve the precious gift of bread. Luther would be pleased then to see how wheat ended up getting stamped on coins, right? Pennies and uh, flags and shields of, and other national symbols all around the world. Doesn't, didn't, doesn't always necessarily have a religious meaning, but it's along the lines of what Luther's thinking here, that without some form of good working government, there's chaos. And when there's chaos... There's no bread. And when there's no bread, there's revolt and death. It's fitting then that we pray for our daily bread. That through all the things this daily bread is and stands for, God may give us still more blessings and good things. This petition is also directed at our chief enemy, the devil whose desire is to take away and interfere with all we've ever received from God. And this is why, you know, this is why he causes so much contention, division, murder, war, deception. You know, it it pains the devil that any person would get a mouthful of bread from God and, and eat it in peace and enjoy it. It pains him. So you see, in this prayer, God wishes to show us how he cares for you and all your needs. He gives you these things. Well, he gives even even evil people these things, doesn't he? He gives these things even to people who don't believe in his goodness. And many of them are in charge of things, right? Or make things for us or help make society work. Yet God wishes us to ask for them so that we may realize that we have received even the wicked from his hand and might recognize in them his fatherly goodness towards us. If God were to withdraw his hand in this life, his creation, nothing could live on its own for a second. How much trouble is in the world already, simply on account of those who deliberately oppress the poor and the vulnerable and deprive them of their daily bread? The whole world has to put up with this. Imagine what it would be like without God's saving, generous, working in all things. We wouldn't even be here. We wouldn't be alive to have our debts remitted and to remit the debts of others. 
Anyone here a landowner with tenants? Got one? (laughs) Okay. Have you ever said this to any of them? Forget this month's rent. Forget it. No. (laughs) Forget the rest of the money you owe me on the property. Forget it. It's all yours now. For those of us who have a mortgage, wouldn't it be nice if our creditors said that to us? Forget this month's rent. Or uh, forget this month's payment. It's a biblical thing, you know. It's God's way. He set this kind of thing up with Israel. Every 50 years, a jubilee. Landowners would set their indentured servants and prisoners free. Debts owed were zeroed, cleared out in order to reflect the mercies of God in a way in which they could really be felt, which you could experience and live and be understood. Forgiving debts and having them forgiven is another need to call upon God and pray. That's why he included it here in the Lord's Prayer. Not that he doesn't forgive sins apart from our praying for it. The point is for us to recognize and accept this forgiveness, which comes from the atoning sacrifice and blood of Christ, crucified and risen. What this part of the prayer really is, is, or what it really means is, God doesn't wish to regard our sins and punish us as we daily deserve, but to deal graciously with us, to forgive us as he's promised. And so grant us a a joyful and cheerful conscience so that we would stand before him in prayer. But let's not forget the comforting attachment here. As we forgive others their sins. God's promised us assurance that everything is forgiven. Yet on the condition that we also forgive other people who, when they sin against us. We sin against God every day, yet he forgives us all through his grace. Which means he's done all the forgiving on account of his son and not by anything we do and try to do. So we must also forgive others who do us harm, injustice, antagonize us, and the like. If you don't forgive, don't think, for, don't think God forgives you. But if you do forgive, you have assurance that you are forgiven in heaven. Not on account of your forgiving, but instead because God has set up for you a strengthening, for strengthening a sign Along with the promise, forgive and you will be forgiven. I know it sounds like a gumball machine. You know, you put something in and you get something in return. It's not like that, really. When you forgive, it's a seal and promise already made by God to you through Jesus. It benefits you and it benefits the other person. Forgiveness is a gift given to you that you can use and practice every hour of every day, keeping it with you at all times. And that's good news, my friends. Look, I'm out of time, and I haven't even finished going through this prayer yet. But having taken a closer look at it, I hope you see more clearly how God wants you and me to pray for everything that attacks our whole welfare, be it either mind or body so that we seek and expect help from Him and Him only. 
and not to look inwards towards ourselves for the kinds of needs that only He can provide. So, I could finish it up next time, uh, but I want to move on to some of the uh, miraculous healings Jesus did as reported by Matthew and the cost of following Jesus. So, you don't want to miss it. See you then. May the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.